Manitowoc County, August 1854. A group of German Catholic immigrants led by a mysterious priest arrive and create the small community of St. Nazians. The group refers to themselves as the Association and soon Manitowoc County would never be quite the same. After their leader, Father Ambrose Oswald, unexpectedly passes away, the sect is eventually taken over by the Salvatorians from Rome, who cease operations in the early 1980s. Abandoned and open to trespassers for much of the 40 years since, persistent whispers of a rogue priest, abusive nuns, and suicide make St. Nazian's rumored to be one of the most haunted places in Wisconsin. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, everyone for tuning in to this episode 23 of badger but the numbers keep going up it's weird. imagine that we episode. add more episodes and the number goes up 23 of People badger are listening bizarre my name is scott whitman along with me your other host mickey sanders I'm how you mickey doing mickey sanders i'm good how are you doing i'm doing excellent and along with us again our resident paranormal expert mr jim Cooper, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Good to have you along. So we are talking today about uh, a pretty well-known haunted site in Wisconsin. It's been known for a while. We've known about this gym for a long time. Neither one of us has ever investigated uh, paranormally St. Nazians, but it is a very well-known urban legend, really, in the state. And, uh, you know, so we have some good material for you today. We're going to dive into that a little more. I found this little nugget online that was posted just a couple weeks ago. It's actually an older article, article, but it was posted, reposted a couple weeks ago. It's America's 10 most notorious and creepy murder houses. America's 10 most notorious and creepy murder houses. And two of the 10, exactly 20%, are in your great state of Wisconsin. Just like the alcohol lists, we're always... You're going to find Good us, percentage. If, if, you, if you dig deep enough, you're going to find us eventually. We got our bragging rights for but the when, things that we're good at. When we have lists like this, you don't have to dig very far. <laughs> it's right? alcohol and it's murder. So I'm going to run down this list, and it is pretty interesting. I think a lot of these places, most of us 
if not all of us have heard of, but it's always interesting looking at these notes and lists and seeing exactly uh, what people think about us all throughout the country. <laughs> and I don't know if this is if this is in any particular order or not. I'm just going to run down how they have it. So number 10 on the creepiest, notorious murder houses in, in the United States. Number 10, the Lizzie Borden House been in there. Fall River, Massachusetts, which, Mickey, yes, you have been we've, there. We've talked about this before, too. Oh, really? You've been there? Yeah. So you you did visit. How'd that visit go? It was great. It, it's actually a bed and breakfast you can stay at, and I've, I've got other friends who've actually stayed there. But, yeah, it's it's very interesting. We didn't go that far into it. So did you get to tour, like, where the murders happened, or do, are the people staying in those rooms? Like, you can stay right in the room you, where she, like, I don't. I don't know about that, because we didn't stay. We, we kind of just checked out the gift house. I don't think it was open the day we were there. You can take a little tour... And again, you can stay there. But even what we did, and we kind of just walked around the premises, went into the gift house or the gift shop, there's a lot to see and, and, and right. you learn a lot just from being there and you feel it. I mean, there is definitely a presence that I, I felt. would love to go there. Yeah, it's it was, fascinating. It was great. Yeah. Uh, so the little blurb it says here is this, this the Lizzie Borden house. This is the infamous home where Lizzie Borden is rumored to have taken an axe and murdered her father and stepmother in 1892. Borden was tried and acquitted for the murders but American mythology still links her to the crime. Number nine, the Amityville Horror House in Amityville, New York. This is the one where I, I said it reminded me a lot of the Harry Hebert case that we did a few episodes ago reminded me of the Amityville Horror House. Yep. It says, quote, Ronald DeFeo Jr. reportedly took the lives... Of well, he didn't reportedly do it. I mean, he was convicted and he confessed to it. No, that's more so, than a report. Right. <laughs> so Ronald DeFeo Jr. did take the lives of six family members in the house in 1974. He confessed to murdering his parents and siblings with a 35 caliber rifle. The house is considered one of the most haunted houses in America. Very well known in America. Yeah, everyone's mythology. heard of it, right? right. So obviously the history, Amityville but... horror. Number three on this list, of course, the Ed Gein house in Plainfield, Wisconsin. Now this says, this is, was the home of American murder and ghoul Ed Gein. Gein was the inspiration for Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs, as well as other horror villains. Also known as the Butcher of Plainfield, he exhumed corpses from graveyards and kept trophies of their skin and bones in his basement. Some of the keepsakes included bowls made of human skulls and a lampshade and waste bin made from human skin. The movie Psycho is loosely based on his existence also. Also, what this, what this article doesn't say is that the Ed Gein house... Is gone. Is not, it's not existed yeah, for like 70 years. It's they, been a long time. They burned time. that down, didn't they? In the 50s, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah the townsfolk burned it, it down. Yeah, just like Summer Wind, they were, didn't want it to be But you, you can you, you can like go on eBay and you, you buy like jars of dirt from the from the Ed Gein lot because the lot's still there. Obviously, there's nothing on it. It's still popular with gawkers, and oh, the, you right. know, oh yeah, you can drive I'd right by like it. I still like to go just to be and uh, feel the presence or whatever. Yeah. It's like when you could buy a sod at Lambeau Field. It's along the same lines, right? Serial killer. Packers. Of course, yeah, and, and of course there was a serial killer that played for the. For hey, the we went Packers. over that yeah. already. <laughs> Absolutely, his name is Randy Woodfield. All. Check out. Episode High five 12. killer. That's Number cool. seven on this list, the John Bonet Ramsey House in Boulder, Colorado. The body of six-year-old beauty pageant Queen was found in the house in 1996. She was discovered in the basement by her father hours after she was reported missing, along with a handwritten ransom note. This case has still not been solved. We but, just talked about her in our last episode. Smart people know that Ed Edwards, of course, exactly. killed John Bonet Ramsey. John like, Cameron would say he did. Right. 
No, the, the, obviously it is still installed. I actually been to this house. I used to when I I lived in Denver when this happened, and it was you know at the time it was like the biggest case in the world. Oh, so everyone's heard. I was one of those gawkers that, of course, had to drive by the area and just say, I've never been in the house, obviously. Right. But I did go past. You were there uh, at the time it happened. The house. That's a different story. Uh, number six on this list, the Velisca Axe Murder House. I just accused you of murdering John Bonet. That's okay. Yeah. Totally. Totally I, missed I it. I did not deny it. Right. You <laughs> right. It was almost like <laughs> wow. I was stating a fact how quickly I we was went living in Colorado at the time. Don't come investigate me. I'm kidding. I hear <laughs> sirens in the background. Now, the Velisca Axe Murder House in Velisca, Iowa. This house was the home of Josiah Moore and his family in 1912. Early one morning, someone massacred Moore's family and two house guests with an axe. No one has ever been charged with those slings. Very popular case in the paranormal world. Jim, you're obviously very familiar uh, with yeah, the Velisca some, Axe Murder some House. Someplace, actually, I would like to go to. I don't know if they do tours or anything anymore. They do. They, okay. they do, actually. We know people who have uh, been there not too long ago. You yeah, know. I would definitely like to do that one. That'd be because I, I can't imagine that there wouldn't be a lot of energy and right. stuff going on there for sure. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Well, and that that's one, you know, we'll talk about EVPs. Uh, there's like a 12 minute EVP from that house. I think I've talked about this on this show before where it's the, I don't know how else to explain it. Then you, you hear the actual murder take place. I, I don't know. Oh, you have it's never been debunked. That. It's right. never been debunked. It's, you know, somebody went in there, set a recorder there, left it overnight and come back and got it. And they caught this and it is, you can find it online. You can look for it. You can search it. It's the, it will make, if you have hair on your neck or anywhere on your body, it will stand straight the fuck up. I just got the willies for five seconds as you're talking, because you have mentioned this and you emphatically talked about it the other time too. I've never heard anything like it before in my life. You can, and you said it's blatantly obvious you're hearing the murder. Oh yes. Yes. It is. You, you hear screaming. You hear what sounds like a man grunting. Like he's like, you hear an ax hitting. It is disturbing. Utterly out of this world. I don't know how, how else to explain it. It would be that. awful hard for someone to fake that. It's very right. disturbing. It's very disturbing listening to it. For us to be speechless, that says a lot. I don't know. Yeah. it's you can If, if, if you're into that stuff, you can find it. Search for Velisca Axe Murder uh, EVP and uh, prepare to uh, have your mind blown a little bit. Uh, number five, the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans, Louisiana. In a house on this property, Mad Madam Delphine LaLaurie allegedly tortured and killed her slaves during the 1800s. The house is said to be haunted by the ghosts of those slaves. Uh, this was portrayed in one of the American horror story. Horror story. I think it was oh, the, it the witch one. Familiar. Coven, I think it's called, or Wiccan yeah, or something like Coven that. Yeah, Coven is the name yeah, of the it, season. So that is portrayed in, in that show. Very interesting story. Number four on this list, <laughs> the Franklin Castle in Cleveland, Ohio. This one I am not familiar with. It says, within the walls of this home, there are rumors of mysterious deaths, Nazi-run assassinations, and illegitimate medical experiments. The castle houses many hidden rooms and secret passages. Many visitors and residents have reported ghost sightings. I'm not familiar. Jim, you know anything about the Franklin Castle? No, I've never heard Cleveland, of that, Ohio? actually. I haven't either. The only one on this list uh, that goes right over my head. I don't know that one. Number three, the Versace House in South Beach, Miami, Florida. Fashion designer Gianni Versace was reportedly shot to death here on his front steps in 1997 by Andrew Cunanan. At the time, Cunanan was allegedly was allegedly already wanted for four other murders. I'm not sure that this house deserves to be on that 
creep. I mean, this is a massive South Beach mansion. You know, and he was killed on the front steps. So I, I don't know. I guess I would consider other houses a little yeah, more yeah, creepy than this house. Some other ones that, yeah. Yeah. Number number two, uh, the Phil Spector house in Los Angeles, California. Now, this this would be on the same line. This is a huge mansion in L.A. This is the house where reco- record producer Phil Spector. Allegedly killed actress Lana Clarkson in 2003. Spectre claims her death was an accidental and self-inflicted injury, but the jury found him guilty of second-degree murder in 2009. Again, eh, does that house deserve to be on the creepiest and most notorious murder houses in America? And a list of ten. You think they could have found better examples than those two? But number one, I will wholeheartedly agree with. Number one, the second one from the Great Badger State on this list. Taliesin, Spring Green, Wisconsin. We may have mentioned that one once or twice, too. Mickey and I were actually just there. Well, just there. It was back in the summertime last year, wasn't it? Great place to go. It says, this is the famous estate of architect Frank Lloyd Wright. In 1914, the estate's cook reportedly swung a hatchet through the head of Wright's mistress and her children and then locked all of the exits and set fire to the house. Allegedly, he stood outside the residence with an axe, ready to attack anyone who tried to escape alive. So I, I guess I, I do, I don't agree with number two and three. I do agree with number one here. And be, and that's actually, um, surprisingly, a lot of people don't know about that. And that's the proper order, too? That was the number I one? I don't on know that. I, oh, it's okay. just, it, it's listed. Because, I mean, that's pretty impressive okay. for it to be number one, but it is Frank Lloyd Wright's house. So that says a lot. One time, you know, one of the most famous men in the world. At, at least you know, at, the at time, least when right? this happened. And yeah. everybody knows who he is still. Sure. Kind of weird. I, I would have thought maybe like the, the Sharon Tate house. You know, in California, there, and I don't know if that's still there or not, or if that's been raised now. But oh, it, um, yeah, the Tate LaBianca, Tate LaBianca, yeah, yeah. The Charles Manson murders, yeah. From that would be a lot more creepy with all the, the other two chaos right? and blood and everything. You know, and the history behind. Yeah, it exactly. So I think if the three of us had to do that list, it probably would be fairly similar, but maybe two or three changes right. there. We still got it. Baby. If you look, if you look at this list five years from now, there might be three. Wisconsin houses on there. Why'd you look at me when you said that? <laughs> All right, one other article that is interesting that I saw that I want to talk about here. Spend the night at Wisconsin's most haunted campground for a truly terrifying experience. The campground is the beautiful High Cliff State Park. Just outside of Appleton. We've all spent good time there. We've all spent many, many hours there. I've camped there quite a bit. Now, it says High Cliff State Park in Sherwood is not only the state's most beautiful park, but it's also among the most haunted parks in Wisconsin, if you believe in the stories. It's not very often that you hear about haunted state parks. This is just one of a few. It is a stunning place that boasts typical state park perks, like hiking trails and campgrounds, but it's also home to some of the mo- of the best effigy mounds in Wisconsin. Effigy mounds are an ancient Native American burial site. It's no surprise that there have been many reports of paranormal activity surrounding these historic mounds. People have reported seeing spirits and hearing strange noises, especially at night when staying in the campground. A big part of, of High Cliff is also it's made out of limestone, which is super conductive um, for paranormal activity. And then you're right next to Lake Winnebago, so you have the water factor there too. 
it also it also talks about not to not to interrupt you. It also talks about the abandoned lime kiln there. That's there too. Right. That is really creepy looking. Right. Yes, all these it abandoned is. buildings. Yeah, it's very ominous looking. There's a cemetery not too far from the actual park itself. I was told by a few different people that if you went there, stepped outside your car or your vehicle in the cemetery, you could hear Native American drums. And distinctly, yeah. Yeah. If you listened close, you could hear other things chanting. I had gone out there with a friend and we brought our, our audio recorders and we got out of the car and we were chit-chatting a little bit. All of a sudden I hear what sounds like Native American drum, boom, boom, boom. Boom! And you hear and this. It, you hear this right out of your car. Right, and it's it was pretty distinctive, and it only lasted about another five seconds, and then it quit. By the time I had actually got my recorder turned on, that it quit, and it was right at dusk. And we uh, we also heard some chanting or what sounded kind of like they were, you know, like Native Americans doing their tribal rituals, oh, yeah, you know, kind of that. It was fairly faint you couldn't hear it real distinctly you couldn't hear what they were saying but you could definitely hear the tone to it and you knew what you were hearing yes it was faint enough that we really didn't pick it up on the recorders unfortunately the sounds i can definitely tell you they were there and obviously you know being from this area we've all been to high cliff many times never went there with searching for that kind of stuff on in mind though so i can't i can't say that i've ever experienced anything there certainly believe it though i certainly it is uh heavy native american in history right the effigy uh, mounds are very uh, well known and and that's not to say you didn't hear it but because you weren't listening sure to it. yeah but it didn't even you know paid any attention to it but just another reason why um and and with what we're talking today what we're going to talk about today with saint nazians and jfk prep uh just another reason why so many people consider wisconsin one of the most haunted states in the country. We're bizarre. So, Manitowoc County. <laughs> Have you heard us mention that before? Has come up a number of times in our episodes, right? Obviously, making a murder, the Stephen Avery, Teresa Halbach case. It's a, it's a point on the Lake Michigan Triangle. Right, Hotel Hell, Randall Woodfield, the I-5 killer, played for the Manitowoc Chiefs. Right, the Coons family, their parents, came from Manitowoc County after uh, an uncle killed their grandmother with a flat iron in Manitowoc County. So Manitowoc <laughs> kind of keeps rearing its head. County is full of good feelings. Every few episodes or so, and here uh, we're going there again for today's episode now that this is as i said earlier this is one of the most well-known um quote-unquote haunted sites in the state legends abound with this place really maybe one of the most notorious haunted places as well it's pretty much everything you hear about saint nazians and jfk prep is negative right negative spirits bad things abuse uh, rogue priests rogue nuns and whatnot so we're going to dive into this a little bit tonight and uh, obviously, we have our resident paranormal expert Jim Cooper here with us to uh, to unpack some of this stuff. We're kind of ready to go tonight because we, uh, Jim, if you don't mind me saying, Jim believes that his own house is active, and it's kind of a unique story because you grew up in that house, and your parents are the only ones who ever lived there, right? Right, correct. So, you know, we we had 
actually done an investigation not too long ago, paranormal investigation. We, we do that every now and again. We've done that a couple times with Jim's house. Very low-key, very low-tech, low-key. But this and is the first time I've been involved. That's the first time Mickey's been involved. So we just actually went over a lot of the stuff that we caught from that time. So we're all souped up and ready to go and talk about ghosts tonight, right? Something that a lot of people, I think, don't understand is the people I get asked all the time about doing paranormal investigations and can they come along and, um, you know, they ask lots of questions about it. And what they don't necessarily realize is is to do an investigation like that. I don't even like the word investigation, you know, but to do uh, an activity like that, you don't have to go to JFK prep for it. You know what I mean? You can do your house or somebody's house, you know, in a very low-key, low-tech way. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to go to uh, Waverly Hill Sanitarium. It's to, like uh, practice. To, to you do, can choose right. any building, right. right? Now, in regards to JFK prep, the only reason I know about this, and, and, and Jim and I have known about this for a long time, being, you know, in this field, um, it really is for the paranormal aspect of it, you know, because there's always been legends of it being haunted, and St. Nazian's is a haunted town, supposedly, and JFK Prep um, is a, a notoriously haunted place. Maybe not the only reason I know about it. There's a, I guess there's a sports reason that I know about JFK Prep as well, not paranormal at all. Um, and maybe I'll talk about that a little later, because it's a story really that deserves to be known. But St. Nazian's is a very important was a very important religious place, one of the most unique small towns in the country, really. But it's because of the hauntings, and it's because of the the paranormal legends that we're familiar with it. Now we've never investigated it, Jim. Right? We've been on the we've been on the grounds. Right. We know people who have investigated it, and we've heard a lot of the things that have gone on there, and so-called evidence found there, but and so forth. But we've never uh, really knew the whole story of this place until we kind of dug in deep. Uh, for this episode today. Now, St. Nazian's is in Manitowoc County. It's a village of about 800 people, so this is not a big place, right? It's founded as a religious colony by German Catholic immigrants in 1854. Now, that colony, much of it at least, a lot of the buildings that were built at that time have been abandoned um, for much of the last 40 years or so. Some, you know, they've been sold on and off, there have been, you know, projects here and there, people trying to, to renovate buildings and, and whatnot. But really, none of it has been able to be brought back, and we'll see what the current owners do with with it now. But you know, being on the on the premises, I remember being there. I've been on the grounds. Um, again, never done any exploring there paranormally. But you know, you see these very large buildings, very ominous looking, a Gothic church, you know, and it's a big Art Deco place. The uh, the seminary is, and all the windows were busted out. You know, you got curtains are blowing through the windows and stuff. So garbage all over the place. I think a lot of that's been cleaned up now. But there's a reason that it gets a reputation that it does like this. Now, you know, simple searches about St. Nazians, if you look online, they all kind of say the same thing. They all parrot off of one another. You know, you have bloggers out there. um, And it all kinds of goes something like, you know, the the, quote, the town of St. Nazians is believed to be one of the most haunted places in Wisconsin, founded by a rogue priest who, upon his death, is believed to have cursed the town he built. Throughout the years, natural disasters and numerous accounts of bizarre, unexplained phenomena have helped keep the legend alive. You know, you find quotes that say that it was the rogue priest was a, a mystical, prophetic uh, and he did heretical works. So, you know, a lot of these blogs, they kind of piggyback on one another. They don't really go deep into um, what this place is really like. So let's dive into that a little bit. So the rogue priest is a guy by the name of Father Ambrose Oshwald. 
And his story is really, really what we're talking about here. It sounds like a very German name to me. Oshwald, O-S-C-H-W-A-L-D. Everything kind of derives from him. Now, he was a priest in the Black Forest region of Germany in the 19th century. So we're going back a little bit. Born in 1801, uh, he became a priest in the 1830s, and he was doing things that, uh, you know, the powers that be of the church, they didn't really like. There was an investigation into him by the Diocese of Freiburg, which is the diocese which he worked under. Freiburg. Because, again, he was doing things that they asked him not to do repeatedly. He didn't stop. So they, they did an investigation in, into him. They actually had the local police do investigations into him. And we do have that today. We do have that investigation. So we know exactly what, what their issues were on him. Now, Oswald is a, is a hard guy to research. Right? There's not a lot of stuff out there on him. There's not a lot of comprehensive history on Ambrose Oswald. With but, the commune lifestyle, they didn't have a lot of documentation for what they were doing. Now, I, I do want to give credit to a guy named Hubert Treiber, who was a, a German educator. He was also a fellow at UW-Madison in the early 1980s, which is probably um, what brought him to this story. But he did uh, write an essay on Oswald called, quote, Waiting for the End of the World at the End of the World, Melanarianism Miles from Nowhere. Now that's a mouthful. Melanarianism is a big word, and it basically means what Christians believe about the second coming of Christ, that Christ would return on earth, but he would rule on earth for a thousand years before Judgment Day right? Millennium, millenarianism, that's where that word comes for. So waiting for the end of the world at the end of the world is a reference to St. Nazian's being in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. So now this is pretty much the only comprehensive history or comprehensive anything of Oswald that is really easily accessible to researchers. So Oswald did say, basically, his, his reasoning for coming to America when he came was it was basically to get the world ready for the second coming, because he did believe that was coming. But it's not the only reason, as we'll see, is, you know, there were kind of a lot of things that he was doing that, um, you know, made the church kind of chase him out of Germany. like freeing members from vexations suffered under Protestant rule. One of the things he was doing is he was, quote, meddling in medical affairs, unquote. So if you look at this time we're in, we're in the, you know, the 1840s, medicine is becoming highly professionalized. So Oswald was basically, he considered himself a faith healer. And he would talk openly to his parishioners about the healing powers of prayer, you know, laying hands to kind of like a, a faith healer you would see today. He was described as, quote, intimate with classics and history, learned in medicine and eloquent as a divine, unquote. And above all, he wanted to be a communal type leader. He did study medicine at the University of Munich, but he also learned many things just on his own about uh, using plants and herbs to make holistic healing like that. So very spiritual in his in everything he did. He was trying to come at it from a more natural, organic type right. point of view. So he believed in homeopathic cures, you know, which his family did study. He, as Jim said, did study as well the healing powers of, of plants and herbs. So... Because this is a time where medicine is being prescribed by people who were formally trained now, highly professional practice of medicine at the time. So the church thought, you know, it looked a little weird now that we're, we're kind of in a professional practice of medicine. And, you know, you're still talking about healing hands and uh, tree bark, you know. So, so the, church, the church is like, you know. Not seeing eye to eye so much. You're, yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of making us look a little goofy 
with your maybe archaic uh, practices here. The other thing that they don't like to talk about is that medicine was also becoming commercialized at this time, and he was interfering with that. So obviously, if you have people looking to make money off of medicine, and you have this priest with a, with, who is getting a pretty large following saying, no, 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 I'll just heal you with my hands, or let me just, let's just pray together, and that'll take care of your headache or whatever it would be, well, people aren't going to take too kindly to that either. Well, the people who want to be healed without paying more money sure, will, of course, that yes. takes away from the church itself. The other thing he would do, apparently quite frequently, is he would conduct exorcisms, um, which the church didn't want him to do without their permission. So this guy's just going around exercising demons out of people. I have exercised the demons. Sorry, I had to get that <laughs> the off. Church, the church didn't really like that either. So now the thing is when the church would reprimand him or when they would tell him that he needed to stop doing stuff, he had a rash of supporters that would vouch for him. Now, it's, it, so it became a bit of a balancing act. So we're at a time where the government of Germany at this time is, is a, a highly Protestant. And you kind of had battles between Protestants and Catholics at the time. So the Catholic Church is, is already kind of falling out of favor. And they're worrying about pissing more people off. So they don't want to, you know, reprimand this guy who has, he was kind of becoming a rock star a little right, bit. Right. You know, so the church had to be careful of, you know, we don't want to tell this guy not to do this stuff and, you know, run the risk of scaring these people away from us. But they were so different in their beliefs that they knew they had to kind of rein them in on top of it. So that's kind of a paradox they were dealing with. Right. Now, this this massive rush of support that he had from his followers was gaining the the attention of the press as well. You know, we're talking mid-1800s press. But again, the concern with the church was growing that, quote, action taken by the police against a Catholic cleric would endanger the reputation of the church's legitimate disciplinary power. So the church was in a bind with this guy. They didn't want to kick him out because that would piss people off. They didn't want to reprimand him too much because that would, uh, you know, make his followers angry as well. But he's also a little bit on the goofy side, according to the church. Now, again, this the, inf- the investigation into him, it says, quote, Chaplain Oswald asserted quite freely and modestly that he was equipped with higher powers and that he could, if necessary, use these powers in the name of the Almighty to cure all ills, chronic and acute, even those previously considered incurable. He would use exorcism, consecrated oil, the laying on of hands and prayer, and would shun all forms of medical assistance that were contrary to his way of healing. According to his own records, his patients number 3,160 and he claims in good faith to have healed most of these. An ignoramus would take this Oswald for a miracle worker. However, a closer look makes us think otherwise. Chaplain Oswald is of meager stature, scrofulous, and is permanently in a state of high excitement, which he attempts to disguise by adopting sober habits. His early education is most deficient. Oswald's profoundly disordered imagination appears to be deceiving him, and we would advise him to work on his healing powers on his own person so that he would no longer have to practice them on others. I think they sound impressed with him. Right. I mean, that was, <laughs> so wow. They, they want him g- gone. Uh, gone, right, without telling him to get out of here. It's like they're basically saying he's a witch or a warlock and that his beliefs are not welcome here. But as you said, they can't just shun him. Because he's got a lot of people that they're afraid to lose. He has a lot of followers. So what they do is they start shipping him out 
to rural communities in the middle of nowhere, right? Into these small communities hoping to, you know, decrease his reach a little bit. Black Forest, Kletkin, Briscow, Schwabia, and Oldenwald. Man, do those sound like... Never German heard of towns. these places? Yeah. I'm, so, I'm, not, I'm sure I mispronounced all of them. And I'm half German. Now, anywhere they, they sent him, his followers followed him. And he knew this would happen. Again, he's becoming a rock star. It didn't matter where, you know, whatever hole they tried to send him to. It's starting to sound like our last episode a little bit, James Strang. There's some similarities with Strang. Right. Yeah. This was bringing more bad press to the church. It's obvious what they're trying to do. They're trying to minimize his reach, but his followers keep going uh, where he's going. And he knew this. He would write that he didn't care where they sent him because he knew his followers would go wherever he goes. But he, he talks about wanting, again, as we said before, he wants to go to America. He wants to go to the New World. And he says it's basically to, you know, prepare the world for the second coming. That's his explanation of it. Obviously, what we're talking about, there's more reasons of it. That's why most people go to Manitowoc County. Of course. Yeah. yeah the that would explain a lot exactly of the crap we've talked Christ about. exactly Christ would show up, right? <laughs> Apparently he needs to go there with all the stuff we've been saying. Now, he also publishes a book of mystical writings, of prophecies, right? So he, this guy's Nostradamus, or he thinks he is. He definitely thinks he is. He thinks he's Nostradamus. Now, the church considered these heresies, obviously. You can't be predicting the future and be a cleric of the Catholic Church. They don't like that too much. So the church tells him not to do it again. He says, I won't. And two years later, he does it again, right? So the church, um, you know, was he a rogue priest? Yeah, he was a rogue priest. He's not, I don't know if he's doing anything grave, right? I mean, he says he's uh, faith healing and he's and he's telling prophecies of, of negative things, of war and, you know, bloodshed and people are going to die and things of that nature. But it's still just his opinion. It's and fear-mongering, and, right? Right. And I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean he's hurting people. And if he's actually healing people too, I mean, there's something to be said that he's doing good too. Well, and his followers Obviously agree. They, so. they vouch for him and right. say that he is healing people. Now, it sounds like it could be a cult, but if he's not hurting anybody, I mean, so be it, right? Maybe not bad. He's not hurting anybody that we know of, right? And it uh, it seems a bit cultish, but right, these people continue to follow him. Now the church is getting pretty much at their wit ends. So they basically hear that he's thinking about going to America, and they're, you know, the people who did the investigation of him write the following. They helped him pack. Now, this is written in 1850, right? This is written in 1850-ish. This sounds like me today. Quote, well, this ought to be good. We have given the simple-minded fanatic Oswald a hearing, and it is quite clear that he has not been telling the truth. Pilgrims dazzled by his powers, mostly women, flock to him. This simpleton wants to emigrate to America, and some of the women want to go with him. We beseech the worthy diocesan authorities to put no obstacles in this lunatic miracle worker's way if he wants to leave our country. We should be very lucky indeed were we to be rid of such a madman. It is very doubtful that he will be able to continue his lunatic ravings on that continent. There are times you have strong opinions. I'm not sure you would word it quite that way. Simpleton, simple-minded, kind of the same thing. Fanatic, uh, says lunatic twice. Kind of what we heard about the Coons family and the people's descriptions of them when we did that episode. So the church is done with him. Um, they kind of make it easy for him to come to America if he wants to. I guess they didn't like him. And he does. Maybe that's the feeling we're getting. So he comes to America. Got a dream to take them there. They're to America. Now, why does he come to Wisconsin, right? Well, he chooses Wisconsin for a couple of reasons. One is the remoteness of it. Um, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's not on the East Coast, obviously. 
So anything inward from the coast in those days is kind of remote. Well, it's actually in August of 1854, they actually reached Milwaukee, which is a little more developed area. But as you said... Well, that's, where, that's where they shipped into. That's yeah. where, yeah, right. But they ended up, as you said, trying to find more remote location. Right. And, and another reason they came here is because there was, including Milwaukee, because of Milwaukee, there's a massive influx of German immigrants at the right. time. So, you know, a little bit of it is because we would be familiar with the people that are there. Because Wisconsin's a widely German state. Right. So, as Mickey said, they sail across the ocean, and they wind up, first of all, obviously pulling into, into New York. And they lost some—he had 113 people, so his followers went with him. His followers go with him across the ocean to another continent. So, yes, there are some James Strang similarities here where you have the power— to coerce these people to he's do convinced this. them that he's he's their leader and and they are following him complete faith yes all in faith so they wind up in milwaukee where he purchases 3800 acres of of land sight unseen which most land is is purchased unseen three dollars and 50 cents an acre yeah for 38 3800 acres that sounds like a lot of money back then in manitowoc county with a down payment of fifteen hundred dollars and they landed in the town of eaton in manitowoc county i wonder if he got some cash from the church just to go like here here's some money even please yes just get out here's, of here here's ten thousand dollars just leave so he sends six men in advance um to go up to the land that they bought and to find a place for their commune and this is where saint nazian's is today so they get there in August 1854, and uh, they complete the first church. Well, St. Nazianz actually was in honor of the St. Right. Gregory Nazianzus. So the town was actually named after someone else, but now we'll start hearing Ambrose Oshwell's name a lot more. So they call themselves the Emigrant Association of St. Gregory of Nazianzen. Just rolls right off the tongue. And they, and they abbreviate that to the, the association. association. <laughs> sounds, sounds like, like, wasn't that a band? It sounds like a mob hitman association. You know? <laughs> right. So they're coming from the Black Forest in Germany, a rogue priest with these followers who are faith healing, and they call themselves the association. Now, And this area, the thick, dense wilderness, so it is not developed at all. No, they cleared every tree. Every spot that that you see today was cleared by uh, the association. Now they call it, you know, again, they were Emigrant Association of St. Gregory of Nazianzen. Now Gregor of Nazianzen was a very early cleric in Catholicism. He was an archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century. Right, so we're talking. So this guy lived in like ago. the you know three hundred. He was born in like three thirty, and lived to three ninety, I believe. But you know his philosophy was the basically that private property was an injustice. Everybody so owns everything. Everybody, together. well, the the church owns everything. All right, and everybody works to you know chip in. That sounds like today's mentality. Huh. Sounds a little like communism. Right. Right. So this was very appealing to Oswald. So this is how they lived. So they come here and they build this commune. Some of the original colonists were single men and women who belonged to the institute that Oswald created. They professed private vows of celibacy and lived in common. The sisters lived in a convent in the center of the village, and they ran a small hospital and an orphanage. The brothers lived in a monastery in the south end of the village, and they managed a farm, a sawmill, and a blacksmith shop. He also created a seminary on the brothers' property for the training of priests. 
As Scott said, they would work without pay to support the community as a whole. They raised all their own food and produced all their own clothing. Some tended to fields, others made articles of straw, shoes, fancy items. So now for for the next, I don't know, 15 years or so, it's pretty quiet, right? We don't hear much, which... They're doing well. They're living on their own. They're independent communities. So I think they were keeping to themselves, and it sounds like they were thriving. It's said that Oswald was also somewhat of an architect, and his designs for settlement buildings were quite unique. His first structure, as Scott mentioned, was built was St. Gregory's Church. Eventually, this became too small, so a larger one was eventually built. Soon after, as Scott mentioned, his sister's convent was built. It was a three-story building, plastered on the outside and painted in delicate pink. One wing was used as a chapel with two galleries, capable of seating a large group. By 1860, 56 buildings then existed. So they were building quickly, and they were making this community thrive. Only 48 families in the village weren't colony members, so everybody was part of it. They were all involved. In 1864, a brother's monastery of the Franciscan order was added, similar construction to the sisters' convent. All throughout the grounds, there were various boxes on posts that contained representations of sacred scenes called stations. On the summit of a little hill, later called Loretto Hill, was a small chapel resembling and named after famous Mount Loretto. Interior decorations were very elaborate. Single men and women lived in separate houses or cloisters, as Scott alluded to, Houses built of beams and plaster, just as they were back in their fatherland. In 1869, the colony installed a boiler plant for running the mills and for more spacious buildings of the parish. This expense ended up reaching about 13000 with an additional 24000 required for the church itself. And four years later, these expenses nearly cost the closing of the colony. Only financial aid of a few very generous individuals would save the community. This all worked well for them and they thrived for many years. Everything was held in Oshwald's name as he was their leader. It should be noted that between 1850 and 1860 a number of settlers sold out and were moved to land that was in much larger abundance. So people were starting to leave, maybe starting to see the cracks in the foundation. So in 1873, Oshwald becomes unexpectedly sick. He's not, I mean, he's 70-ish, 71, 72. There Suddenly ill. There didn't seem to be uh, signs that he was growing ill, but he... he it, it said he was in excellent health. It he, looks like it was pneumonia. It right. looks like he, he, he got pneumonia. But he kept himself in good shape, it sounds like, up until he caught this cold, which led to a lot more. And he was, you know, basically on his deathbed. It's said that the extreme weather of that year might have had a lot to do with it. Now, he, he had a, a very close confidant, I guess you could say, whose name was Anton Stoll. Now, again, in a lot of the blogging and things you say, they call him Anton Still. That's because somebody spelled it wrong one day and, and everybody, everybody copied it. <laughs> his, his name is Anton Stoll. So he was basically the record keeper of St. Nazian's at the time. So now he was with Father Oshwald while he was on his deathbed. And, and he was receiving people too. You know, people knew he wasn't doing well. The brothers and sisters would come in and he would bless them and such. And Anton Stuhl writes the following. He says, A number of times I have observed that Father Oshwald, with closed eyes, when there was no one else in the room but I alone, would extend his hands in blessing, and then with his hand signal someone away, and yet I saw no one in the room. That was in February of 1873. So, you know, what is he alluding to? Is this, this, this could just be delirium, right? Right. He's dying. Um, this could seeing be, things that aren't sure, there necessarily. Sure. Now, the other interesting thing about this is, is on the night of February 26th, people throughout the town of St. Nazian start hearing banging on their walls in numerous houses throughout the town, not just the convent, right? Not just the seminary or the monastery, all throughout St. Nazian. Not just where he was confined to for eight days, 
all throughout the town. People were complaining of hearing pounding in their walls or on their walls. Now, on the night, again, that was on the night of February 26th, and this pounding ceased about 7 a.m. on February 27th, which is right at the time Father Oswald passes away. Now, he, he, so he passes away the morning of February 27th, 1873. Now, his tomb, again, this was an unexpected death, right? His tomb was not yet built. And, you know, when you're the leader of the commune, you know, you have to have a crypt, right? You can't just put somebody in the ground right. when you're, you're... Put them in a basket. You're Ambrose Oshwald. So his, his coffin was lying in full view in his crypt for about, about two months. 63 right? days. Until they finished his tomb. And... As we'll get into, the entire property, as I've already mentioned, was under his name. And it, as a result of his death, became willed to the community. And we'll get into some discussion yeah, as sure. to issues as a result. So he, he his tomb is in a crypt that is in the basement of the old church, right, under the altar. So his, his crypt is not done yet. So the tomb is just, or the coffin is just kind of laying there in full view of anybody. So in 63 days later, when his, when his tomb is finally done, it's built. Uh, before they put the coffin in the in the tomb, finally sealed and moved it into. They opened it, and I don't know why do you do this. Why do you open the casket? What is the purpose of that? Is there any? Do you know <laughs> of any, Jim? With a group called the Oswald Sisters, alongside priest Father Mutz, noted body hadn't decayed and no corruption or odor odor was on the body. His eyes had sunk in a bit, but its skin had complexion of a live person, and, and the hair and fingernails were still growing. This is their account. They washed his face, which gave him even more of a natural complexion. This this is what they saw when they opened it in April 29th. So kind of creepy. A couple of the sisters, along with Peter Mutz, who was his successor, he was Oswald's handpicked successor. Um, it wasn't Anton Stoll because he wasn't a priest. So Peter Peter Mutz is the priest. So he is the the, the new leader of the Saint Nazian's commune, and so they open it for what? For observation. For what are they observing? He's been dead for two months. Right. So well, for examination. For like examination. Said, what are they trying to well, find? Well, I guess maybe that. So I think they could see. They could see, and so they wanted to get a closer look that he hadn't decayed much. They was they were astounded by that's, it. That's you know that's the legend is that he didn't he didn't decay. Now his hair hair and nails do continue growing yes, when you're that, dead. Right. That's, that's common. So that happens right. to everyone. Yeah. Right? Now I I don't know about the you know they they washed his face and his complexion was basically like a living person. That and there's there are photos of this. There's photos of when they opened his his casket. Well, and the and the the fact that there was no odor after 2 months cuz that right. should have, that, set in. that should have been pretty nasty by right. that time. Yeah. Dead bodies don't smell good. No, and, and this is this has to do with saintly beings, right? You know, that is the... That was the speculation. That's kind it, of right? the, the uh, I don't want to call it knowledge, but the thought is that when you're a saint, if you, even if you're canonized by the church, or maybe if you're a saint in, in God's eyes, I don't know exactly what the explanation is, is that your body doesn't decay at a normal rate, you know? So obviously they start thinking about what are we looking at here? You know, was Father Oswald um, a saint in the eyes of the Lord? I'm sure that's where the examination came. Maybe you know, and, and you know, before he was buried, they actually had a judge come from Manitowoc, which I think you had to do. I think a judge had to look at the body to maybe determine if it was really dead or not. And this judge said, "Don't bury him. He's not dead. 
He basically said he was in a zombie-like state. Startled by the liveliness of the corpse, warned to not bury. Yeah, like you said, claimed he was not dead. This is a judge saying that, right. so a credible source. Right, who was not part of, of uh, the Catholic Church either. He was he didn't, not so a biased he had, so party. He, right, he had no He had no, no investment in, in this at all. Now, you know, that's how the, you know, being afraid of burying people alive, that's how the, the term saved by the bell came from. Right, like in in medieval. Zach Morris. Yes, of course. Wow. You don't know that. <laughs> Mario Lopez. No kidding. <laughs> the term "Saved by the Bell" is from like in medieval times. I think even all the way up to Victorian times, there were so many people that were accidentally buried alive because they thought they were dead. Right? They didn't obviously have the medical expertise that we have today. And so when bodies, a lot so of times, bring out you, got your the, dead. you got the shivers again, Mick. Yeah, I keep getting, <laughs> getting the willies. This is freaking me out. So a lot of the times when bodies were, they were reinterred into different crypts kind of like this, they were opened up and they would find claw marks on top of the casket. You know, the body would be moved. These people were obviously were buried alive. I'm not dead yet. Right. I'm feeling can, happy. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Just imagine waking up well, and you're in your... Oh, my God. Was, like you said, panic. saved by the bell. Didn't they actually used to put a bell then That's on the a, outside? Ex- exactly. That's why. They would run sure, a, right? And then they could... They would run a string into the coffin. Into the coffin. In case you're yeah. not dead, exactly. you ring you this. ring the bell. Maybe we wait till they are dead and then put them in the box. I, just throwing that out there. But, yes. you know, the judge said, don't bury this guy. And they're like, eh. Nah, he, Close he's, enough. He's kind of gone. We're kind of sick of him anyway. We want to, you know, go in another direction. So they, they seal up his body and they put him in the crypt. And then 53 years later in 1926, his body is moved again into... Um, a mausoleum at the base of the the Loretto Hill, which Mickey was just talking about. And that is where it remains today. It's still there. You can still go into it. But when they moved his body in there in 1926, they opened up the grave again. Local health officer, Dr. L.W. Gregory and his clergy members opened it up again, and they found more of the same. I mean, his skin looked a little more disheveled, they said, or I guess a little more shriveled. Yeah. But other than that, it, he doesn't seem to be com- decomposing. And again, there's a photo of this. They took a photo of this body. And he, I, he literally looks like an, old, like an old guy sleeping. It says, skin was shriveled and pale brown, but body and limbs still very intact, which that's telling right there. While coffin iron was long rusted and fallen off, the box he right. was in was falling apart, and right. yet his body was still in immaculate now, condition. You can find these photos. You can Google these photos, look for you know Father Oswald's uh, body. And this is a, a, a literal photograph in 1926 when the guy's been dead for 53 years. I think I'm going to break into convulsions. And he I'm looks like Grandpa Oshwal laying on the couch. I swear to God, he doesn't look like a guy that's been dead for over two generations. I'm not even afraid of death, and it's creeping me out. I'm getting the willies like that nonstop. You know, now I know there's, you know, some people have tried to explain that it was because the casket was, uh, all the air was pumped out. So he's basically vacuum sealed into like he's it. Han Solo, uh, right? But you, your body is still going to decay. Of course. After fifty-three, they weren't mummified. No. You know, I mean, natural so, natural things in the air that was trapped in the box with them would no, start eating away. And it's not like they have the the chemicals and everything that they can preserve the bodies with, like they do now. So. Right. And the, the natural things in the air would start eating away just because of trapping the box with them. You know it. There's nothing, this is, it's some kind of a miracle as you're, as you're kind of alluding to. 
Well, I, I'm I'm not alluding to that, but a lot of people did. I don't know what's right. going on. I, well, I, right. I'm not a doctor. Yeah, I, I guess can't. you didn't allude to it. Sure, but, yeah. But, but it sounds like something that's unexplainable. You know, he, he wrote books that, you know, like Nostradamus, he would he would talk about these prophecies. And one of the things that it came out much later, uh, it was in a Sheboygan newspaper in the 1920s that was found in his papers um, much later, is that they he predicted World War One in the 1880s. Um, he talked about battles and he talked about where it started and why it would start. I don't have it in front of me. I wish I did. Um, you know, but th- there's other evidence here that says that maybe this guy was a little something more Not than... the kook that they thought he you was. You know, maybe there was something to any of this. Well, a lot of times with these kinds of people, their greatness isn't appreciated until long after they're dead. Maybe this was the case. Now, after he dies... The Association. It sounds like a WWE like tag team. I'm telling you, it sounds like a <laughs> 50s band, like the Drifters, you know, kind of like that. Sounds like something other than a than Not a what we're Catholic describing. commune in uh, St. Nazian's. Uh, so after he dies, the Association um, goes through some pretty rough times, right? You, you take the head of the snake away, and the snake just kind of uh, falls apart. You know, a funny thing happens is that right after he died... His members conveniently wanted their private property. So they say, I've worked for a lot of this stuff. This is my home. This is where I've been living for many years. I want this to be mine. So isn't that funny how that works is when the guy, the leader is gone, people Uh, now say. We don't care about being community. We want. And as a result of his name being on everything, the community was never incorporated. This is where the legal issues. They had a whole bunch of financial issues. Uh, with back taxes. Thus, people were incapable of inheriting the property, and they also, there were a large number of debts against the community, so there was money issues all along. So the state actually came in, and and a lot of the land uh, was defaulted back to the state. Many of the original members were no longer able to run the show because they were elderly now, right? Stoll passes away in 1889, uh, Father Mutz, he has some medical issues on his own, and he's no longer able to lead the association uh, in, in the mid-1890s. So the remaining members um, are having major financial problems. They're losing their land to the state. So they're in some dire straits here, and they're too old to do anything now. So they actually write a letter to the Society of the Divine Savior, which is a Catholic congregation in Rome, Italy. And they basically pitch them an offer, and they say, come here, send some of your people here. We will give you everything we have. You can have our land. You can have our buildings. Save us. Save us. Take care of our elders. Get us out of this financial hardship, and everything we have is yours. And the Divine Savior, the Society of the Divine Savior, which was known much better as the Salvatorians, take them up on that offer. They proceeded to incorporate as the Roman Catholic Religious Society. And they take over the property in 1896. So they immediately build a new St. Ambrose Church, which is still there today. That's the church when you go to St. Nazian's, the big church that's connected to the seminary. They start a seminary college of St. Nazian's. They build structures. They add an agricultural wing. New farm buildings and silos providing necessary foods. In 1906, they break ground on the new Salvatorian Seminary, which opens in 1909, which they continue adding to for decades. And basically, St. Nazian's becomes the central administration location for all of the Salvatorian functions throughout the United States and Canada. 
So St. Nazian's from this little town that was founded uh, in the woods by Father Ambrose Oswald becomes a very important place in regards to the Catholic religion. Now, by the 1930s, space was cramped. They needed a new seminary, uh, and a new one was built and opened in 1939, and that is the building that you see on the premises today. This was considered to be the best equipped seminary in the country at this time. So now here again, from the 19, what, 1930s to 1960s, not a lot's going on. So what, you know, what not is that Not good or mean? bad, though. Well, true. You, I shouldn't say not a lot's going on. They're, there's they're there's not a lot right. known about it. Right. So is that because everything is going well, and it's just there's nothing much to say, or is it sketchy, and they're trying to keep things secret? Hush, hush, right? right. So I guess that would be where the legends start today, is what was going on at the seminary in those 40 years, 1930s through 1960s, um, that a lot of the legends today um, are derived from. Now, in the 1960s, enrollment does fall off. Not only... Consistently, year after year, it was happening. And not only here, not only at St. Nazian's, but in seminaries throughout the country. There was more talk about how to incorporate the campus to be more beneficial to the community, and the seminary also did its own kind of deeper dive into itself and found out that of its over 2,000 graduates over the years, only 424 went on to be ordained priests. 20%? What is That's that? pretty telling, yeah. You know, the rest went on to, uh, they became teachers, they became, you know, worked in social services, worked in medicine. I mean, they were still successful people, but they weren't going into the church. So now, after considerable deliberation, it was determined to reorient the mission of the institution to train leaders in service. So kind of the religious aspect was taken out of it. And they're, you know, they wanted to train people in service, going into social services, going into teaching, education, things of that nature. The last year of the seminary was 19, the 1967-1968 year. Now in 1969, it becomes a John Fitzgerald Kennedy Prep School, JFK Prep. And it's organized and operated as a non-sectorian independent corporation with the Salvatorians. And it opens to people of all faiths and was meant to develop, quote, tomorrow's leaders with a deep and abiding concern for men, unquote. It was only open to boys still, you know, just like when it was a seminary. It was only open to boys in 1969. However, in the second year, that changed. The opening enrollment was 83 students for the record. Then the next year, as Scott alluded to, the intake reached an all-time high of 175 students because females were now allowed to enroll for the first time. So this becomes a high school, right? JFK Prep. Now it's not. A, it's still not. A, it's not a normal high school. It's like a, it's a, it's a prep school. It's like a boarding school. Not right? huge either. You, you stay in dorms. Uh, you, the grading wasn't like it is today. You know that you were graded basically on what you were able to do. Um, so you worked at kind of your own pace. They really didn't have um, classes. Like they didn't really separate people: sophomores, juniors, seniors. Now it, it's it was still accredited by the state, right? You still could graduate high school, so there had to be some people keeping track of your credits and so forth to graduate. But they didn't separate you, you know, like they do today: freshman, sophomore, senior. So now many of these students were from troubled backgrounds. They were from really all over the state, but a heavy amount of them were from. Milwaukee. Um, so again, from six, 1969 to 1982, this was this was a prep school, JFK Prep. It was a high school. And then again, declining enrollment causes the school to close its doors in 1982. And since then, 
you know, what are we at, 40 years or so, it's been virtually abandoned ever since. Not always. Again, there's people that have tried to renovate it. People have tried to fix up some of the buildings. They've tried projects. Nothing has really taken. But when you have these large abandoned buildings, very ominous-looking buildings, Four stories, churches. It's a big building. Right. People start walking around. People start checking it out, right? And vandalizing and doing other type things that people do. And this is when the ghost stories start. Now, obviously, a lot of what goes on with St. Nazians and a lot of what goes on with JK, JFK Prep, both of which you can't really have one without the other, obviously. The whole town of St. Nazians is purported to be haunted. JFK Prep purported to be very haunted. This is a big urban legend, right? Obviously, you have these big, open, ominous-looking buildings that have been sitting there for 150 years, and they've been abandoned for decades. Rumors are going to start. And to go along with that, it, it's said that, as Scott alluded to, because the state started taking away a huge amount of the land, 20 years after his death, Father Oswald cursed the town. That's the pretty typical explanation for these rumors and thoughts and hauntings that people believe. So so the legend is that he's he's angry that the state took money, so he curses the town of St. Nazians. But the problem with that, right, as Mickey said, is that he was dead for 20 years before the state took any uh, any land away. Now, so if he did curse the town, it would be posthumously, right? Right, yeah. If you're able to do, <laughs> if you're able to do that, right. you know? I mean, he had some powers in life, evidently. Well, but sure. I, I didn't, you know? other than looking great in a coffin, I didn't know he had those powers after death. Now, you know, ad- admittedly, St. Nazian's did have its share of disasters, or, or has had its share of disasters. In 1918, there was a massive fire, uh, knocked down a bunch of buildings, burned to the ground. 2000, there was a Huge tornado touches down in St. Nazian's. Again, takes a bunch of structures out. Tens of millions of dollars in damage. Um, you know, these are... Over $100 million in, in damages to St. Nazian's and the neighboring Chilton. So, you know, these are the things that are pointed to that are, you know, the, what the, the quote that I read before talked about the, quote, natural disasters in St. Nazian's. That's a fire in 1918 and a tornado in 2000. And guess what people chalk it up to? You know, I think if, if, a, if a town is going to be cursed by a rogue priest posthumously, um, you're probably going to be looking to do more damage than that. But, you know, again, it's all part of the urban legend. You know, in 2005, this, this was on, JFK Prep was on a show called The Scariest Places on Earth on ABC Family. Nationally run show, right? On ABC Family. ABC Family. It so it must have right. been horrifying. <laughs> right. can imagine. Mickey Mouse and, and Snoopy are running around right. in the background. Now, we, we were actually contacted by a source who, who was part of that show. They were, they had been, they'd done interviews. They were, they were actually a, a paranormal investigation team. And they had, they've done probably one of the last full-scale paranormal investigations in JFK Prep because it was owned at that time by somebody who was open to that. The current owners, um, not so much. They're not really into that narrative. They don't want people talking about that stuff in regards to their property, and that's fine. That's totally their prerogative. 
Um, but well, in, and they, they've also said that the um, property is not safe. A lot of the buildings have sure. asbestos in and things well, and like that. And they're run down. So they're and they're, yeah, they're in such reasons. bad condition that, yeah, they don't want people falling or hurting themselves Broken or windows whatever. And structure falling. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, the source was talking about when they were, they were doing the investigations for that uh, TV show. The TV show kept trying to push them into going into a different direction because the investigative team didn't, you know, although they, they said that they thought there was, quote, something there, they didn't, it wasn't evil, they didn't feel, you know, it was a negative presence, but the show kept kind of pushing him towards this, you know, this narrative that it's scary, that it's demonic, that it's something to be feared. Um, and the, the, the team that I was uh, conversing with didn't, didn't really go along with that narrative, so they cut him, <laughs> they totally cut him out of the show, and they actually brought in another team that, uh, did what the show wanted them to do. So, you know, obviously these TV shows um, are looking for a narrative, they're looking for viewers, and it doesn't really matter um, what the actual truth is. Now, some of the, a lot of the, you know, what you hear a lot, supposedly the urban legends, um, voices of children in the hallway. I mean, this was a seminary for decades, right? It was a high school for almost 15 years. Voices of children in the halls could be residual sound effects, right? I mean, this is something the that energy could... energy gets trapped there. But the thing is, when you actually go looking for any of this actual information or EVPs, they're nowhere to be found. Like Scott said, it's it's a lot of urban legend, or at least that's what I lean towards. A, a lot of what you hear in in regards to the urban legends are put forth by trespassers. You know, people who were in the building when they weren't supposed to be, and they weren't necessarily there, quote unquote, ghost hunting. You know, they're they're there thrill seeking. But um, they're and, also going into it, trying to hear things and hoping. So a lot of it might just be the power of suggestion or their minds working feverishly on them. Sure, and you know, as as we said before, uh, we have never invest. I've never been inside of the property. I've never done any. Um, paranormal exploring, so I couldn't say either way. I have heard some EVPs that were, you know, shown to me by a source that it's there. I'm not going to say, you know, it's it's completely bare. Um, but is it something ominous? No. Was there something fearful there? No. You know, and again, some of these urban legends that you hear, laughing, some kids uh, sound anguished, they're screaming, and this is supposedly because there's been decades of abuse by nuns on the property. A figure on a white horse has been seen on the grounds outside. This is supposed to be Ambrose Oswald. Um, now there was a, a, again, an urban legend of a teen from New York who hung herself in the dorms due to the abuse of the nuns. Uh, this is a very well-known urban legend. And this, you know, the source that we had did contact us. Um, and, and they, they do have evidence that this happened. They actually know that this happened. So there was a teen. She was not from New York. She was from Wisconsin. There was a teen that did commit suicide in the dorms. And the source that I have have actually seen the suicide note that the teen left. And they were contacted by the roommate and also the family of the girl who did commit suicide. Um, so that is true. You know, with some of the stuff where there is smoke, there is fire. Now, she wasn't from New York. I don't know where that came from. She didn't hang herself from the basketball hoop. That was also something that's talked about. Um, she actually hung herself in a closet in her dorm. So that that is real. That did take place. Does that account for the whole place being haunted? No. There's also accounts of a nun 
committing suicide in the building by hanging herself. You can't find this being verified at all. Um, the other thing you hear about is stations of the cross that are outside. Um, they're bleeding, oftentimes with a full moon. We've heard that before. When Kate you look, blood. Kate blood, right? So these are these are uh, tropes, obviously, that you hear with haunted stories. So what is real about JFK prep being haunted um, or not? With all of the urban legends going on around this place and all of the rumors that start, this is from the Manitowoc Herald Times, June 24th, 2005. This is a newspaper that reports the following. Quote, many people believe, many people, okay, this is not like one or two people they say, they say many people, many people believe that the ghosts of former residents still lurk about the now dilapidated buildings of JFK Prep. Tales of physical and sexual abuse become theories speculating on the origins of the hauntings. Many believe the school was constructed in the early 1900s by a sect of German Catholics who came to the United States to practice pedophilia, incest, and homosexuality. Oh, that's some kind of cult for you, huh? Wild tales of ghosts, demons, and other strange anomalies persist still today. It is said that numerous people have encountered the ghosts of former children who were abused and whose spirits have chosen to remain on their old school grounds. So, Jim, just in, in your expertise here, you know, in, in the ghost investigations that you've done, if you were a student and you were abused mercilessly by a nun, you didn't die on the property, though, because there's no record of anybody dying on the property except for the person that committed suicide. Are you going to go back and haunt that place? I wouldn't think no. so. I would think you'd want to get as far away from that as you could. And, and, you know, like we've said before, paranormal seems to be energy-based, whether it's good energy, bad energy, it seems to be energy-based. It seems to connect to the land sometimes. Sometimes it connects to a building. Sometimes it connects to, you know, deaths that have happened. But you can also get positive energy from buildings that have had Lots of good things go on right. in them, too. Yeah, it's so, not always negative. Right? No. People and always kind of assume that. In fact, I would say more often than not, it isn't negative. That's what I've learned from both of you, yeah. Most of the time, it's not. So, you know, let me, let me read that quote again from the Manitowoc Herald Times, a newspaper. Many people believe the school was constructed in the early 1900s by a sect of German Catholics who came to the United States to practice pedophilia, incest, and homosexuality where... In any of the research that we have done into this story, would any of that come to light? Well, I like how homosexuality is... Right, it's thrown in there with incest with, and pedophilia. Right, not, not quite the same thing. Now, you know, back then, if they came here because they were shunned in Germany or whatever, and they came right. to practice that... Sure, they were but, just trying to get away from people who didn't understand. But look look at the, the trouble that we've had finding any information at all about this place and about the people that came here, right? We had to dig to a guy, in, you know, a German educator to find any information at all on Oswald. So where are these people coming up with these ideas that they came here to practice pedophilia, incest, and homosexuality? It's all complete bullshit. And why, even if you read it one place, why do you want to spread oh, no. that? No, if, no, no. Many people. Right. Which could be four <laughs> or five. Well, I read it four or five times from the same person who got it from this person who got it from this why, why do you want to start or continue that rumor anyway? Jim and I have been in this area a long time. We've been uh, in part of the paranormal community for a long time. We've known about JFK Prep for a long time. We've never heard of pedophilia mm -mm. or incest being never. equated with this place, ever. 
I don't believe there's, quote, many people saying this stuff at all. There are reports of abuse, okay? They're not real reports. There are people saying that abuse happened. There's no evidence of people that. People assume that a lot. There's no of documenting it's of assumed. it. It's assumed, yes. Like, like even my dad, who's now like 75, he went to a Catholic church here in Appleton, and he he spoke of the nuns, you know, cracking them on the knuckles with a yardstick. So sure, things were just more. Discipline was different back then than it is now. You you could get away with that a little more, but the stories end up going over the top as far as the abuse, quote unquote, that was done. And I think this is more of that, right? And a lot of it has to do with the the reputation that the you know the Catholic Church has now, and in the fact that there was a thirty year cover up. You know, with with the diocese, I understand that. With priests having done horrific things, sure. and, and nuns just always being so nasty and having such bad attitudes, that that just seems to be the predominant look that a lot of people have on the Catholic Church. There's also stories with this place that the nuns were impregnated by the priests, and they would have their babies, and they would drown them in the lake on the premises. That is something you hear about pretty much everywhere when you're dealing with a. a a religious property is that the priests are always impregnating the nuns right. and they're always drowning the babies. And right. I mean, it's a trope. None of this has any evidence. So people think about paranormal investigators and they give them the, you know, the, the quote kooky stereotype, but it's actually the paranormal investigators that do the actual research of this stuff and find out that this stuff is garbage, you know, and including the source that we had, that was saying that ABC Family didn't want to put them on their show because they didn't go along with the urban legends. They didn't go along with the rumors that made the place look like a house of horrors when there's no evidence anywhere that any of that went on. Just well, more sensationalism, as we've mentioned in other episodes. Yes. They don't know if they're actually real or not, but if enough people believe it and enough people talk about it, that they can actually bring these things into existence. And, you know, I was kind of thinking about that when you were talking about this, that if you regurgitate the same thing enough, that it's you might bring it into existence. And power it's like, suggestion. Yeah, the power right. suggestion. and Perception is reality, so yeah. there's something to be said for that, I suppose. Like Scott said, we do our research, and I know every every place we've ever gone and investigated, we try and get the backstory on it because that helps you know one thing for sure is what to look for and what to maybe expect to get. But you always go in with an open mind because you don't know. You may catch something completely different or you may catch nothing. Now, as we've said in the past, we've done a lot of different investigations, a lot of different places, and we have never not captured something when we've been there, usually You're talking types of different types of commercial buildings, or I mean, right, commercial buildings, private typical. residences, All everywhere, different yep. types, everything across um, the gamut, and and it's not always the same kind of um, things that you capture. I'm normally probably eighty percent of it is audio that you catch. You're always looking for that that photo that shows a spirit, um, black mass, uh, shadow person. You're looking for that kind darker of darker light. Compared that's to that's like the holy grail um scott and i have experienced that you know think things happen but i mean that is very infrequent it's 90 percent audio you do catch some things on on video you, a lot of times though things like in my own house catch out of the corner of my eye i don't know if i actually am seeing them 
again, like you said, power suggestion. Is it, you know, you've seen things in the past, so are you, are you actually seeing this? Or is it something that, because your mind is tuned into that, that, are powerful, right? that you're reacting to something that your mind is thinking about, right. you know? That it maybe has convinced you that you're seeing, right? Right. As we've talked here, you know, for the last few minutes and we're we're kind of saying that we don't believe a lot of the a lot of the rumors and the stuff that has been reported to have happened here does that because we don't believe that all the legends are true or any of them for that matter for the most part does that mean it's not haunted no of course not i, I you know i would actually probably hedge my bets that this place is haunted this has a hundred and uh a hundred and fifty years or more of activity of people walking around that property. You have all kinds of emotion that has been spent on that property over a century and a half. You have a seminary, which has decades and decades of activity in it, of children, of young adults, of staff. You have a school, a high school, had years of activity by young adults. Numerous churches. That energy is there. That energy was exerted there. That energy, I believe, is still there. And you even asked, a, there's an actual page that is dedicated to ex-students of JFK Prep, correct? And you asked a question just as simple as, is it haunted? Many of the answers were no, almost protectively. Right. That, it, they were almost defensive, it seemed. But then there were a few people that said, oh, of course. So you got you got both ends of they, the end. They were split, and you're right. And, you know, some of the first responses to that were no exclamation point. How dare you Like, even you're right, insinuate. very protective. Like, right. don't bring this up. But there were also some very thoughtful answers that said, no, I, I was there four years, right. never saw anything. And there were people that said, yeah. There's, there's stuff going on there. Right, as usual, you're you going to get kind of the, every kind of answer. You know, but what stood out to me the most are the, the defensive answers. Sure. Like you said, especially to begin with, the, the first few answers were, no, there's no way it was haunted. Like, it's like, this is my school, and I don't like people talking about it that way. Well, and like we've said different times, there's a lot to be said about believing, not believing, and everybody's different. Not everybody, not, not everybody believes. And, you know, even though Scott and I have both done this, we've both had proof that we're convinced that there's paranormal activity different places. We still have a, a healthy dose of skepticism whenever we go somewhere. You have to. And we always, um, if there's a logical explanation for things, we're, we only want to catch what's actually there. And that's what we've kind of alluded to in other, other episodes. You have to question everything because if you don't, you lose credibility. Right. You, you want to err on the side of caution because if you just assume everything that there, that's, there's a level of arrogance with that. And, and, and why do you believe anything at that point? You have to question it all. Yeah. I, I've said you know, when we first started getting into the paranormal investigation, what is, how long has it been? 15-ish years? More than that, maybe? I don't know. Uh, well, we, I think we started in like 2011. So it's been 12, 12 years, 12-ish 12 12 years. years. You know, I think in, in the beginning, I was really, really excited to show people, look what we got. You know, I'm going to convince you that this stuff is real because I know it is because I was there when it happened, right? I have no interest in any of that right now. All I do this for now, all I want to continue exploring for and investigating for is for my own purposes. And I don't care if I catch an EVP and I show it to somebody and they don't hear it. I couldn't right. care less. I used to be more like right? that. I want everybody to like and believe in right. what I'm believing in. But 
It's, it's for me now. Right. And what I look to experience is not necessarily to catch that e- evidence on equipment. It's personal experiences. It's an experience. That I can't. I can't show you or Mickey. I can't. This happened to me, right? I doesn't. I couldn't care less I will about never, that. I will never be able to appreciate what you went through because I wasn't there and I wasn't you. You will never convince a non-believer that spirits no. exist. And ever. I think that was a, a a good point Jim was making. If you're going to go in not believing this or believing that it doesn't exist, you're probably not going to see anything. If you're going to go in wanting to see everything, then you're probably not going to be a real credible source either. So you kind of got to go with an open mind, but a a cynical mind or a skeptical mind too, because that's the only way you're going to get the truth out of it, correct? That's what I've learned from you guys. No, 100%. You have to question everything. You have to try to debunk anything that you can't explain right away. Because well, that's mean, the only thing that's going to give you answers. I mean, just like the investigation we did at, at my house, you know, you we caught some things that we can't explain, but then we also had some things that we could explain or that you can uh, rationalize a lot of it. Yes. And it, and it's, do I know there's, there's things going on in our house? Absolutely. Without question. Okay. But I also know that it's nothing malicious in our house it's nothing that wants to hurt us it's nothing that's a problem for us i mean we're we're accepting of whatever is there and again i'm not putting i'm not saying any one particular thing is there or because as scott said on different occasions we're not sure if these are spirits we're not sure if it's just energy that's there and it's been there for a long time and it kind of gets imprinted on things and that's why you're trying to decipher if if it's a real or if it's not. And that's why we keep doing what we're doing. Right. One of the saving graces, I think, for the you know the current owners there that don't allow this stuff to go on anymore, and they, they've kind of put a quell on these rumors continuing to ramp up. Uh, you know, I think, as we mentioned before, one of the last investigations done, I think it was done in good faith. I think they did a good job in terms of being able to verify one of the urban legends that was there in terms of a suicide on the property, but they got the real story, you know, and it wasn't exactly what the, what the urban legend was. So we do plan on having a a follow-up episode to this. We do plan on going on the property, uh, in all legal terms. We're not breaking any rules or anything like that. You are allowed on the property from dawn to dusk. We sound like badasses, but we're not. We would never do anything without the proper homework and and permissions and and things like that. That is not what I mean at all. But, you know, as we mentioned before, you don't have to uh, lock a place down overnight to do your own research on this stuff. You can go there and walk around the property and kind of make your own decisions about these things. And I think, you know, I'm I'm happy about the research that we've done the last few weeks, as, as we said earlier this was a huge urban legend to me. You know, all I knew was, was the rumors, the rumors of abuse, the rumors of, uh, you know, rogue nuns and a, and a heretical priest. And I knew all that stuff, but I didn't. Well, m- most people have heard that, right. I, w- I would think, is the safest. Right. Assessment. But there's not an ounce of me that believes any of this nonsense about pedophilia and incest. No, it, it, do I know that for a fact? No. But obviously I'm going to make up my own opinions on things. And this seems to be sensationalism. Irresponsible. Of course, yes. And I certainly, as Jim said before, I certainly don't believe any of these people who were abused on this property would go back in the afterlife and want to be there. Why would you want to relive your own torture? 
you know, I just, I don't see that as being real. I hope, I certainly hope they're not there. Um, I hope they're uh, somewhere far, far away from here, um, if any of that is true at all, and um, in an afterlife of peace. As, as we often say, it's just, it's, there's a responsibility that we all need to take as, as human beings that to spread these rumors and to sensationalize is, there's something that maybe people think is fun, but when, when it all comes down to it, when people are hurt and the victims ended up being lost in the shuffle it that's when it becomes irresponsible and hurtful and that's it's not right and that's just something that we as a whole as human beings need to to work on and and try to prevent ourselves from doing amen brother amen